call it. Call it, yes. For what? Just call it. Welcome to episode 11 of Call It Friend of myself, Andy Girucci, and my co-host, Donica Tiernan. In this week's episode, we discuss the 1974 Francis Ford Coppola film, The Conversation, and the 1971 Alan J. Pakula film, Clute. As always, this podcast contains spoilers for both films right from the start, and check out justwatch.com for streaming and rental options in your area. Have fun. What did you think of the conversation? Here's my overall broad strokes opinion is, number one, I was kind of, I wonder, was wondering why have I not watched this? Like, why didn't I watch it before? Mm. And I think there was maybe a period where it was more difficult to get hold of. Like, I mean, when I was was really, when I was 16, like back in 97 or whatever, that was when I was really starting to get interested in films and I bought a lot of VHS tapes. And then in the early 2000s, I bought a lot of DVDs. But then as things progressed, like I probably stopped seeking out a lot of the a lot of the classics. But I never I never managed to get hold of the conversation at that point. I remember. So I was kind of surprised I hadn't seen it. This uh, its DVD release was um, made a big deal of in Empire Magazine, um, and that's when I sought it out, and that's when I saw it. And I immediately gravitated towards it because, uh, yeah, I suppose broadband internet wasn't a thing. And I was just staring at the article going, there's a Francis Ford Coppola movie that was made in 1974 that I've never seen. What the actual fuck? So I tracked it down straight away. Now, um, my my memories of it were just being a bit uh, perplexed by it, a bit confused by it. Um, And yeah, give me your uh, give me your one line summary of what you thought of it this time around. Well, it's my first time watching it. I thought it was uh I thought it was good. I didn't think I I read of quite a few reviews and things about it and people saying it's like amazing, it was great. I liked it well enough, but there's large parts of it that I'm not interested in. And I feel like the ending is a cheat. And uh, yeah, it's good. It's definitely well shot. I mean, it's like Gordon Willis and uh, uh, oh no, or was it or was it Bill Butler? Now I'm confused. It wasn't Gordon Willis. It was it was it was Bill Butler. Um, yeah, I mean, it looks really nice, and of course, it it fits. It's very slow moving, mm. which is of of the period. Um, William but, Friedkin was not a fan. This was really? one of the films would... that made him break up the uh, the artist studio. Um, because, Interesting. Yeah, him and uh, Francis Ford Coppola and George Lucas decided to start working together. And then, uh, what was it? Um, yeah, the first two films that they were ready to bring out would have been The Conversation and Star Wars as it was cooking up. Uh, and uh, Friedkin obviously just thought Star Wars was just a child's film and he thought The Conversation <laughs> was intensely boring. Now... I'll say this. Uh, so the conversation, Francis Ford Coppola's 1974 follow-up to The Godfather could accurately be described as aggressively boring. Um, like really, really going for uh, the boring. Um, not entirely in a negative sense, but like, I, I mean, it's no secret, um, let's say that um, Coppola was pretty much prodded onto the set of The Godfather, of adapting uh, Mario Puzo's The Godfather famously, in order to get him bigger clout in the studio system. He'd already won an Oscar at this point. Can you name doing what? 
Uh, for cleaning windows. No, he wrote the screenplay was it, was it for, for a film. For what? Yeah, he wrote the screenplay oh, for right. a Oh, right, okay. The Patton Oswalt biopic. Yes, that's correct. <laughs> um, but anyway, yeah, he had brought The Godfather to the big screen. And at the time, the conversation was actually being edited uh, and having its sound designed by the same guy. This was apparently... Or so Francis Ford Coppola claimed the first film to have the title Sound Designer because of some union snafu where they wouldn't allow uh, Walter Murch, the wonder kind who did both, to get a sound editing title. So they put it, they named it Sound Design. So while he was actually mm. doing the, the post-production on this, Coppola was already shooting the second Godfather film. And it was only by agreeing to sh- make the second Godfather film that he got the money to make the conversation in the first place. Because both of those came out in 1974, right? Godfather Part Two and The Conversation. Yeah, that's released right. In the same year, and were both nominated for Best Picture, which is fucking mad. It is mental. Um, but you can like, I mean, I mean, it's just mad that someone puts out two Best Picture nominees in the same year. I mean, it's crazy. Not that they don't deserve to be nominated. Well, like, I mean, so Coppola will. Like so many directors, um, speaks of the films that he made later that he he prefers and uh, he didn't get to make his personal films with The Godfather and with Apocalypse now, like some of the greatest films of all time. Um, And I've heard him say in interviews that he was delighted to get along to the conversation because when he first started making movies, this was the kind of thing he imagined he would be doing, writing a screenplay, getting an idea, driving it into the ground to the end. Um, because he wrote it in the mid 60s or so. He did. He wrote it before any of the technology existed. Um, and mm. it's very clearly aiming to be like highbrow European cinema, very like, mm. like influenced, obvious, most obviously by, by, by Blow, by Blow up, up, right? Yeah, by yeah. Uh, Antonioni. Have you, have you watched Blow Up? I I've seen Blow Up, yeah. Uh, so they, they, like, I must go back and watch Blow Up because, uh, yeah, at yeah. the time when. Around the same age as you, I started getting really into cinema, uh, but of course, I just wasn't ready for loads of the stuff that I sought out and watched. Like this is another one I enjoyed this much more this time around. Yeah, uh, I guess. Then, that would make a lot. Yeah, there's so many like things you would watch just to tick them off the list that you just didn't get. You know, mm. although I like, I mean, some of them stand. Like I remember the first time I watched Casablanca or Citizen Kane, I would have been quite young, and I would have still thought, "Wow, that's fucking incredible." But even things like The Godfather, the first time I would have watched The Godfather would would have probably been like fifteen or something like that, and I would have yeah, same. I must have been about sixteen when I watched The Godfather. Yeah, I would have liked it, but it probably didn't. It wasn't until I watched it as I don't know a twenty year old or something that I really got that. Whoa! Well, you wouldn't. You wouldn't. You wouldn't have killed a man by the first time you'd watched it you hadn't experienced snuffing a a man's life yeah exactly i didn't know how accurate they were going for it with anyway Mm. coppola really aiming for highbrow cinema here um and it's it's much more of a singular vision than with the godfather um and he was given like complete control of it as well you can tell that in a there's a story from well i mean you know that the original cinematographer this a man called uh, Haskell Wexler who was fired fired. (laughs) the first of two times he got fired from highly successful movies to be replaced by Bill Butler uh, also fired from um, 
One floor is the cuckoo's one nest. One floor of the cuckoo's nest, right? But yeah. it's ironic because so Coppola fired him because he felt he was giving the film too slick of a look, and he felt it was very like the Thomas Crown Affair, which is another film that um, Haskell Wexler had done. But the 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 only footage that he hung on to is the opening scene, which is pretty much scene. also used in almost every other scene in the film. That's the titular yeah. conversation, and that's the most complex thing that the film has going on. Um, so, sure, we might as well start with that. I mean, this we yep. revealed the story as it, as it revealed itself to us. So it starts off with a, the kind of, like, long lens zoom in that uh, Robert Altman really became known for, but, like, just massively far away. Um, and, like, yeah. it immediately made me think of... Like, I I remember I would have when I first got into cinema the like people I really really loved was uh, someone I loved and it was uh, Danny Boyle and the way he mm. would kind of just ram his camera in different ways artily and I remember listening to an interview with Danny Boyle and he said he'd have way more admiration for Coppola who would just allow his uh, camera to wander around scenes that he set up mm. and I remember after reading that with Danny Boyle and watching The Godfather and going Jesus he's right this is we, I'm a guest at this fucking wedding and here in this I mean you're just a guest in Union Square I don't know did they orchestrate that or not he claims that they when you say when you say guest at the wedding I start thinking about the first hour of Michael Cimino's The Deer Hunter and I started sweating <laughs> oh, a little bit it's like I don't want to be a guest at a wedding no oh, weddings good in God. the 1970s please yeah that could, film could have used some studio Let's interference give me a narrative please uh, but even with that zoom in, the film has kind of starts the trick that keeps you going the whole way throughout, which is it's doing this slow zoom in and therefore by forcing you to go, what's happening here? What, what the fuck? What yeah, that's exactly that's as a viewer, you're, you're sitting there going like, is that Gene Hackman? There's a mime wandering around. Yeah, 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 you're like, yeah. what the like, fuck where, is going What am I supposed to be looking and that, for? That, and that sound, the, the, sound design of the of them kind of like recording the mm. sound and picking up different parts and this kind of background interference noise is effective in that in that way yeah uh reputedly it was um they captured the scene in exactly the way surveillance experts would capture the scene now see i don't know it, like it's too far in the past to tell i can't tell whether or not the technology was meant to be impressive as you watched the film. I think so, because it was all the stuff that was used in Watergate. So, and they didn't realize that that's what the US government were using. So it was definitely high tech shit. Cause the, the thing is what's impressive nowadays is you're watching it and you're going, wow, somebody put this together <laughs> using tape, like cutting, cutting audio and visual tape together. Because it but is it's very similar, but that's very similar to how we edit this podcast, though. It's a series <laughs> of three tapes <laughs> to physically have to tune them and press play on three uh, different analog tapes. Anyway, yeah, the film is getting you to lean in immediately to try and figure out what the fuck is going on, and that's the trick it pulls the whole time. It, like yeah. once you realize, it, like it continues on once you realize what a private person um, Gene Hackman's Harry Call is, and then every time he says anything, you're listening for it. Anyway, so least likable Gene Gene Hackman character, uh, possibly. He would be even even when he's a baddie. At least he's like he's a little bit, he's a bit more charismatic. This guy is just like awful. Well, what this as a, as a person? What this guy made me think of is like 
You know, one of those people that you, you you hate them for a different reason, not because they're mean, but because the only right. because feeling... of their race or their sexuality, <laughs> or the normal reasons. Stop that saying you hate things people, you're going to have me. to cut, Andy. <laughs> I'm not cutting this. <laughs> I wasn't talking about me. I was talking about you. Oh, fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> no, but you know somebody that you you just. You hate them because the only way it's possible for you to feel when you're around them is sorry for them. And that's the way... Yeah, he definitely inspires a lot of that feeling. But he seems really... He he seems to like being the way he is, though. Yeah, he's content, actually. You you do have a point there. He doesn't... doesn't, He's not seeking pity. No. And, uh, just to get back in the story, he is sitting in a van... He's living the dream. Indeed. It's going well. Sitting in a van with John Cazell, watching a couple walk around the fountain in Union Square. The woman has a voice like the lady who speaks on the song Little Fluffy Clouds by the Orb. But I looked it up <laughs> okay. and it is not <laughs> her. Uh, I need to. I have to put that in the uh, in, in the old links we'll put, because I, I'm not familiar with that orb song. And we we we, <laughs> we get like I just want to show you this, guys. That, that was like a, a an outtake of a trivia. Do you know what I mean? I was like, ooh, <laughs> trivia. I heard her voice. I was like, ooh, look at this song. This is going to be some nice trivia. It's like, no, it wasn't her it's at all. It's not a lady. So it's completely <laughs> meaningless, but continue. It was just about the sound of her voice. Yeah, the f- there's a trivia outtake for you. It's like the least relevant thing. Anyway, we're watching a couple walk around and around, and Gene Hackman's Harry Cole and John Cazale's uh, Stan, or basically Frido Corleone, is um, oh wait can i can i just say that, that i'm happy to i'm happy to tick off i finally got my uh bingo card this is i got my bingo that's you, number five you've seen all the Cazella uh, movies i have oh, yeah nice. i have i've seen all all five of his films that were all nominated for best picture so uh, got my Cazale bingo yeah i've seen all of them too yeah, it's Godfather 1 and 2, uh, this, Conversation, the, Deer Hunter, and, and Dog, uh, Day After. Dog, Dog, Dog Day Afternoon, yeah. Dog Day Afternoon, yes. Uh, John Cazale. He, he plays was great. the he was, Afternoon. He was, good, he was good in this as well. I liked him. Yeah, indeed. And Al Pacino was the Dog Day. Uh, yeah, it, it, of all of those, right, great actor, apparently. Um, like he's, he is, he's really good. He's just, he's... he's, he's a good character actor. They made a document, a whole documentary about him that I watched. I saw and I, that, and yeah, I was like, yeah, um, I mean, he's grand. That's the way I was with it. Sorry for saying that. I, I thought he, I think his best performance was probably in Dog Day Afternoon. Yeah, that was the most manic. Yeah. Anyway, he was also shagging Meryl Streep, so he had that nice, well. nice. Before she joined. Um, Tom Hanks in Pizzagate. Oh, really? Okay, now we're really off the rails. <laughs> Pizzagate. What the fuck happened? This was the. This used to be a conversation. Well, she's pretty. The conversation. She's the female Tom Hanks, right? Mm, she's definitely. She she loves a bit of the old Roman Polanski's at the Oscars. She'll she'll stand and applaud him. So Gene Hackman and John Cazale. Am I saying that right? Junkie. It is Kazale. It's Kazale because it, it says on the Wikipedia how to pronounce it. It's got the so phonetics. It's Harry Cole and John, John, John Kazale uh, are in a 
a van um watching this couple uh, wander around a fountain we can kind of tell they seem to be yeah having an affair it's secretive whatever they're up to the guy seems more suspicious than her um and yeah around and around they go um and that's it that's the the titular conversation to the, the story that's it the end of the film <laughs> the short one well yeah that's the, the but it is that's the, 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 the that's it yeah that's that's the crux of the film is that I guess surveillance experts record a conversation and then Gene Hackman spends the rest of the film piecing that conversation together mm. and figuring out what it means while kind of wrestling over his guilt over his past actions and trying to decide whether he if it if he gives the the conversation the information over to the big big director guy if that's going to lead to the deaths of the people who were he recorded it's mad that it was it was so okay for him just to just take the line of blow up for a walk with this one because this is like large chunks of the story of blow up um just reworked and given a neo-noir twist and actually it was like the yeah apparently that that neo-noir dirtiness uh, like a kind of a, a realism was what he was looking for that um, Wexler uh, wasn't uh, giving him. Um, right. But I- ironically, dirtier. ironically, this is like the opening scene, the, the only one that Wexler shot is comfort. Like it's the most real feeling scene in the film for me. Yeah. Cause like all the, most of the buildings that Harry wanders around throughout the movie, they could, they're, they're like, 70s Nolan almost like he's aiming for really modern looking structures and everything. Mm. Anyway, so next we see um next we see uh, Harry come home to his apartment and there's four locks on the door and a bottle of wine inside and uh then we see him phone his landlady and kind of give out to her uh, because she he's figured that she's been opening his mail. Uh, Did you see, I don't know if you read that the first uh, cut of this film was four hours and supposedly uh, part of that is that Harry, Gene, Gene Hagman's character, is the owner of the building. Oh, okay. so that was something that they cut. Yeah. So well, he supposedly Gene Hagman owns the building. <laughs> but that conversation is with like um like some kind of i don't know building supervisor or something but apparently harry cole at least in the original version owns the entire building but yeah four there's a a four hour cut of this there's a four hour cut and part of it i think is him there's a scene where he convinces his niece or nephew not to run away from home (laughs) like thinking about that in the context of the current version of the film like the fuck where would that go (laughs) And what purpose would it serve? So I, I think uh, probably Coppola did well not to yeah, turn this into I mean, he does, he redu- does, redux or whatever. He does well not to like let it slip in that direction a couple of times throughout, I think it's fair to say. Um, it is fairly focused. And also, I think what surprised me about the film is how, much, how small the scale the story is. Mm. That it's just this one conversation and that's what we're focusing on. It, I, for some reason, I was imagining it would be have more, more weight or value than the actual case of what they're discussing anyway. So anyway, yeah, he takes off his pants um, and then <laughs> yes. he puts them back on and plays saxophone a lot along to a record um i like it in films when you're watching people be alone it reminds and me. apparently he learned uh he learned how to play saxophone specifically for the film oh, that Gene was nice Hack manager yeah 
him playing the saxophone in this reminded me of uh, Paul Newman playing um, pinball in The Verdict for some reason. Oh, yeah, The Verdict. Yeah, yeah. Those are strange scenes where he just goes along to the bar and uh, he starts playing pinball. Yeah, but it's like the, you're doing that. You're watching like there's no dialogue. You're just watching actors be their characters alone. I think it's it's, right. it's nice when people can pull it off well, you know. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway, so we see him then visit his mistress in a weird grotty scene uh coppola says it was uh, inspired by a reoccurring dream that he was having um and it's like sad and lonely and um from the bed sit to the lady wearing socks to him getting on top of her in his raincoat and then him getting annoyed because she asks him too much about his life and then he leaves questions and he suppose he pays the rent is yeah. what it seems to suggest that he's just like he has this like kept lady, and at first you're not sure if it's a prostitute or what, but no, it's just a functioning relationship of a lady who takes money from him. It's yeah, a different yeah. thing entirely. And it's like I want to. Uh, <laughs> he just went to the lady store and said, "I want to keep a lady." All right, we got plenty of ladies. I don't want to spend a lot of money. You need to get proper bedding for them <laughs> and make sure you get the appropriate food. Uh, do I? Do I really? A lady's not just for do Christmas. Do I really? Do I really? Mm. The lady inspector comes in. She's wearing socks in bed. What's this, man? Come What's on. What's all about us? The yeah, fridge is in the same disgusting. room as the bed. And you, you were going to make love in here? Well, Shame that's on okay. you. okay. I don't have any problem with that. But the sock thing is definitely too much. Apparently, um, the the role stressed Hackman out a lot because um, he was he felt he was just playing. Well, not he felt. He, uh, this character is apparently the polar opposite to who Gene Hackman is in real yeah. life. And he found Which makes sense given like all the other roles that you've seen Gene Hackman in where he was kind of almost over the top, extremely charismatic mm. and not a nerd. Yeah, but I mean it just goes to show like he it's this way he's such a fucking great actor. I mean he is distinctly yeah. not good looking. Um but like even like even in this, like ah, oh, you believe it every second. And he, that's the thing, is like where he's you said over the top, but he is like realistic, manageable over the top. Yeah, he could give classes in over the top to Al Pacino that Al Pacino should listen to. You know, it's one of the reasons he's just so fucking great. And it is like he was a, he was around uh, forty three when he filmed this. So I have four years, more or less four years to go before I'm going to look like Gene Hackman in this film. Jesus, fact. he his career bloomed fucking late, huh? Yeah, he was a he was a late starter because Bonnie and Clyde was like sixty seven, so he was already like late thirties. Wow! At that point, and that was a bit, that was his biggest role to date. At that point, yeah, mid to late thirties, it would have been mid thirties, maybe Bonnie and Clyde. Anyway, yeah. So he like in in this case is like normally, yeah, Hackman would wear his characters on his sleeve, but in this case, they're like Harry is so introverted that we're like we actually end up learning. A lot of details about his life just through like just through being so focused in on it just to just to pick them up. You know what I mean? You learn like he's got like Catholic guilt going on and he um, ended up being responsible for a bunch of murders. I mean, we'll come to that later. Um, But anyway, so we're more or less at this point, we're introduced to it. He's done a surveillance job. He's a surveillance guy. He's really into his work. and he's yeah d- d- has got no time for any ties or anything like that um he's basically 
Neil from Heat, but not cool. Just mm. not cool. No, it's cool. Yeah. No, because he's like the kind of John C. Riley version of that. <laughs> At least facially. <laughs> if John C. Riley was in Heat. <laughs> Which is that. Uh, I want to see that now. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> never get yourself in. Look, never get yourself into anything that you're not willing to <laughs> walk out of in fi- 15 seconds flat. If you uh, feel the heat the around the corner, the voice corner. is tough. We, how, is, how yeah. do we get that voice? Is a tough one to do. Uh, I'm trying to do him in well any Paul Thomas Anderson film is, yeah. is what I'm going for. Uh, and then he would tell me afterwards, uh, "You did a great job. Let me show you now what you did wrong." <laughs> Which is the line in Boogie Nights. Nice. Nice indeed. So, yeah, uh, we got our whole introduction to uh, Harry Call, and then the plot kind of kicks into motion a little bit when he goes to hand in the tapes. Um, and uh, Harrison Ford's assistant. Harrison Ford. The no, assistant. Harrison, yeah, Harrison Ford. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. The assistant. Um, yeah. He is acting all, all chill. And he's like, yeah, yeah, sure, I'll just take those off your hands. No big deal. Yeah, yeah, I'll just take them off your hands. And then um, Gene Hackman goes, well, maybe I'll just wait for the actual boss. And then your man grabs them at him. Now, this is a major clue to the revelation of the film, but I, uh, for some reason I just didn't miss, uh, like I missed out on it. Like, but when you think about it, why is Harrison Ford so concerned about getting those tapes yeah, ahead of his exactly. boss? It makes perfect yeah, sense yeah, that yeah. the film would work out the way it did, but... I suppose we're just focused so much in on it's mad. You're not, despite the fact that they're dangling the plot uh, in f- the plot of the conversation, not the film, the conversation in the film, uh, they're dangling th- that in front of you so much, but really you're just so focused in on Harry trying to figure out what the fuck his deal is that uh, the plot breezes by you uh, a little bit. Yeah. Anyway. It's funny, but I was reading about like Harrison Ford's character. Supposedly, he was playing him as uh, gay. Really? Yeah. <laughs> I was just like, that did not come across at all. No. Maybe that was 1974 gay because it's like he he was wearing a nice suit. <laughs> that was it. That was, that was the, the telltale sign, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> he had he had nice hair and he trimmed his nails. <laughs> he did very well in life for a carpenter. He was, uh, yeah, but he, I thought he was good in this he as was, well. Yeah, like yeah. I, yeah, I mean, I guess I've, I think, uh, I, I never think about the early Harrison Ford roles. The only like one I can ones. think before this is American Pop-ups Graffiti. I was later. Yeah, American Graffiti is the only other one eh. that comes to mind. Yeah, anyway, so Gene Hackman, a little bit suspicious, says, nah, no, thank you. I want no part of like, and takes the tapes away. Um, and then we see Harry. Harry is back in his uh, workshop, working away on the conversation, picking up things here and there. John Cazale is being a bit um, frivolous with it going on. What they're saying anyway is a boring conversation, blah, 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 blah. He's, blah. he's being a bit Fredo. He's he is a bit being Fredo. a bit Fredo, actually. He's be- actually, there's a point in this film where he's doing exactly the bit where um, he goes uh, to Michael... You don't come to Las Vegas and speak to a man like Mo Green <laughs> like that. Uh, he's doing exactly that uh, with that yeah. guy uh, whose name I should have. Annoying twat. You know the the guy I'm talking about? Yeah, well, the fat guy. Yeah, yeah, the, the fat like, guy. The kind of greasy, like, hey, I'm the guy from the East Coast. You're the guy from the West Coast. That guy, yeah. But yeah. me and you both know that, like, Harry's the real deal and this guy's just some car- some shyster. 
you know? Yeah, he's <laughs> he's some dodgy Italian-American uh, mafioso type who's yeah. trying to get involved, whereas yeah, Harry Cole is the world's most boring man and therefore the best man to conduct many, many surveillance missions. Uh, amongst those, when, they, the, when uh, Harry and Fredo are listening inside their lab, they start to, they, they do, they pick up some information. So they pick up, um, first of all, that the couple feel like that they're being watched. Then they feel like, uh, they feel like they're being watched. Yeah, they, and what it was there, there's one other thing that they pick up on in that. They, then he he basically he picks up on the line after mixing around and trying to zero in on it, and this part of it is very very blow up. Uh, he say, he hears he'll kill us if he got the chance, mm. which is a big one in it. So they they know it's he knows it's dangerous, and at that point we kind of think we're looking at this couple. We're like this couple is in love. That's what Harry is thinking weirdly because actually when he's driving away from his mistresses the other day, he's thinking of this couple. So we're thinking they're in love and that somebody is trying to uh, fuck with their love essentially. And um, that's the, so Harry. I mean, it's, it seems pretty clear. We, we, I think even as a, a viewer at that point, you get the idea that probably they work in, I mean, we know that they work in the same company. They work in the same building as, as where Harrison Ford is, as who Harry's working for. Mm. So we know that it's something like that. And you guess pretty much as the film wants you to, that the, probably the wife, the woman is cheating on the director of the company. And therefore the director of the company is going to get super jealous and is going to, is going to kill them both. And that's what the film was leading you to believe. And it seems pretty clear. Yeah, indeed. I am. Um, that's the, like the one question that I did have in coming this is the, the date on this, is this pre or post Nixon? So it all happened pre Nixon. And then it came out just after some of the Watergate stuff. So, the jet, that's part of the reason why Francis Ford Coppola thought it was successful was because the general public thought that it was a response to Nixon, but in reality it had already happened. Like it was already filmed. It was already written and filmed prior to any of the Watergate stuff leaking. Yeah. Because like, I mean, it's all very, very Watergate, very, very Nixon. I don't know. Have you ever watched a documentary called Nixon in his own words? Have you ever seen that? No. Is that the one that's just the tapes? Yeah, it's just the tapes, and you get to hear him responding to stuff in the real world almost as it like it happens. It'll show you one thing, and then Nixon will be on the phones yeah. giving out about Jews. But like that, basic like you, you get a lot of that feeling here, and there's this imperceptible thread almost throughout. You know. Mm. Anyway, next thing. Yeah, because I mean, like Harry Cole is so is paranoid as this. Yeah, I was going to say this was part of the Paranoia trilogy, <laughs> but it's not. <laughs> but <laughs> these films are quite similar, so I think it was yeah. a good choice to 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 match Clute with this. And um, there's definitely a lot of crossover. But yeah, like it's clear that Harry Cole is is paranoid because there is some unseen threat. I mean, even from the very f- the the from the start of the film or after the. After the kind of recording of the conversation, as you mentioned, when he goes home and he finds that someone has put a bottle of champagne into his into his house, you can see that he's like he's like, "How? What the fuck?" Mm. So from that point on, you see his paranoia throughout. 
So he chews up Frito, who buggers off out of the office. That's when he discovers um, the sound of the man saying to the woman, he'd kill us if he got the chance. He'd kill us if he got the chance. Um, yeah, and then uh, ha- uh, Harry goes the next day to the convention. Now, the convention has intense convention office party vibes. Uh, I, I <laughs> That's almo- like about a 30-minute scene as well, the convention and mm. then the party. Uh, the post convention hangout. It's like about thirty minutes of the film. I um like I I almost uh, I got flashbacks to things like that that I had been at. Uh, it was unpleasant. It's heavily nerdy. Uh, it was just no. Like I remember uh, at one point I worked in a campus accommodation firm and I had to run conferences like this on the and like the amount of people I would see get crazy at the conference yeah, weekend and it's like yeah. Oh, yeah, it is, it is real office vibe. Oh, very much so. And then you get this, um, I mean, she wouldn't have exactly been working at the bar in Sorcerer, but I mean, yeah. you know, the the blonde She's, lady who's yeah, selling the, talking about. the equipment, yeah. Moran, is that his name? The big fat guy, Moran, Moran. Yeah, Moran is his name, Bernie Moran. Um, his blonde lady selling the st- is selling whatever equipment he has, which apparently he stole the design for. One thing I find unusual is Harry Call is famous in the surveillance world. <laughs> He's like, he, how good? Does that mean you're good at surveillance or bad at surveillance? If everyone knows who you are, I don't know. That can't be like, very good. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's a, it's an odd. It's like it's like being yeah, it's like being fucking James Bond or something where everyone knows your name. They're like, hey, you're James Bond. Yeah, yeah. It's it's kind of the angle of the movie, I suppose. You do best not to question. Really, yeah, because yeah, yeah, you should you, <laughs> you shouldn't be known. Famous to in the nineteen seventies as well. It's not like he's on Instagram. I mean, do you remember what? He shouldn't be well known then. Do you remember what Moran's uh, big credit is? No, what is it? He's the one that told uh, Chrysler that uh, Cadillac were getting rid of their wingtips. Oh right, okay. Well, that's good. There you are now. Well done. There you are. Well done, him. Uh, so yeah, they uh, afterwards they all go after the convention. They all head back to um, the Harry's workshop. Um, with a it bo- looks like it's in Vegas or something. Did they just because I believe the movie is in San Francisco. I think it's all in San Francisco. Right. Yeah. Because I mean, like that's where Francis Ford Coppola was around. Like, I mean, there's. Uh, Oh well, that's what American Zeo, American Zeotrope company mm. and all that. So I think they just filmed everything in San Francisco. And uh, yeah, then everybody's getting a little bit crazy, drinking booze, uh, dancing around. Um, and Moran is just bugging everybody's vibes because he keeps bringing up work and asking oh, questions. Yeah, it's the guy who's talking about work at the office party. Yeah, and, and come on. everybody just wants to get muntered and he's just asking, yeah. how'd you do it, Harry? How'd you do it? How'd you bug those guys? Eh? And then this is, uh, is, it is at this point, and we've already seen at, um, by now Harry going to confession. We know he's kind of wracked with Catholic uh, guilt um, about something. And then we hear that on account of a bugging job he did on somebody's boat um, that a family got murdered, basically. And it appears he's kind of carrying it around with him. And Moran brings it up so casually, it's like, Jesus, leave the guy alone. But the thing is, the odd thing is, Harry being so reserved throughout, Moran is guessing all these harebrained theories 
And this is one time we just see Harry burst forward, explode oh, with enthusiasm because so he's, he's just so proud of this job he does. He won't yeah. share the technology. And the blonde lady it seems to just get aroused by how good he is at surveillance. Uh, but then Moran, it transpires Moran has tricked him and recorded his voice. He's really mad about that. He fucking hates that. Did you, I mean, did you assume that the blonde lady, I mean, the, if you can remember the first time you watched it, did you, did you assume that the blonde lady had been planted or that she was there to steal something from him? Um, no. Because, it, or that she's just a prostitute and that was it. Because she was a prostitute. I mean, she said something about turning tricks. Well, yeah, but like, and are we sure she stole the tapes? Yes, she for Harrison Ford, right? She, uh, well, like, I mean, they definitely disappeared with her, but she was, she's there when he wakes up in the morning. No, she's not. You sure? He's, yeah, I mean, are you mixing this up with Clute? Let me, uh, let me just pull the scene up just to check, but. I'm 99% sure that when he wakes up in the morning, she's gone and he's like, what the fuck? Okay, so they do some shagging. He has the nightmare where he dreams that the lady from the tape is going to get murdered. And then he wakes up and he is alone and he's like, where the fuck are my tapes? He goes over to the machine and he can't find any Okay, uh, audio fair tapes. enough. Anyway. So she's she's a setup. She he got he got done. She, by Yahoo. Um then he gets called into he gets called by Robert Duval, it seems, and brought into the office where Harrison Ford seems to be I don't know, his caring assistant at this point. <laughs> it's just like I just didn't want you to get hurt or something along those lines. Um and we just get to see Robert Duval being all upset. It's such a tiny role for fucking Robert Duval to be playing. That's when it was revealed it was him. I just thought like, yeah. So I like when it's revealed that the director is someone of the caliber of Robert Duval. I'm just thinking like Jesus, like that's a heavy. Uh, that is a room of heavy hitters there. Like, seeing those three guys together in one room, I'd never realized that they'd all worked together on a film before. In such a low-key scene, you expect them to be in a courtroom yeah. shouting at each other or something, but, you know, it's hardly anything happens. Just, Basically, yeah. uh, Gene Hackman gets a bunch of money and um, buggers off. He's told to count it outside, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but Gene Hackman resolves that uh, they've not seen the last of him. So he goes to the hotel where the couple in the audio had uh, arranged to meet because he, I don't know why he goes there. Does he want to warn them? Um, Is that why he goes there? Make sure they're safe or something like that? Or at least to, or I mean, his his job and I mean, his life and passion seems to be surveillance. So he goes over to the hotel room. To set up surveillance. Yeah, listens in so through the... So at the very least, he's like, I'm going to get some evidence. And then he believes uh, that he witnesses a murder. Because he goes out onto the balcony uh, to look in through the windows of the room next door because he's booked into the, the the room next door to where they are to meet. And then he sees a bloody hand slam up against some glass. And we're there with him. 
at this point, we definitely believe uh, the wife is getting murdered by Robert Duval. Although I would, I would say my immediate reaction during that scene when he sits down on the bed, I was like, ah, there's probably a reveal here. And my initial thought was, it'll probably turn out that no one actually got murdered. The whole thing was like a setup from Moran or something to steal his technology. Or I thought it would just be like some, I thought it was some kind of, <laughs> I thought the reveal would be that no one got murdered. So like, you know, the plot of Ant-Man and the Wasp. Basically, which is, <laughs> that's my film barometer. That's how I measure everything else is against Peyton Reed's Ant-Man and the Wasp. Yeah, nothing wrong with a bit of Ant-Man and the Wasp. Uh, it's the center of the film universe. Indeed. I and mean, the yeah. Universe, got, like, I mean, guy tricks other guy into thinking he witnessed a murder, steals technology, the end. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, he gets uh, out of there. He, he, Gene Hackman believes he's seen a murder. He can't, it, do, it, can't, it does not sit well it's with him. Murder. And he opts. That he's gonna go and confront these two, so he goes back to the building, and then at this point, he, I believe, well, no, actually, this is not what happened. How does the murder? Actually- he sits around, right, mm. in the in the room, just looking, kind of like, oh, like panicking and yeah. freaking out. Then he he goes around to the because he's rented the room next door to the suite where the couple are in. He goes around and then he can't find anything wrong. It's all tidied up. And then he flushes the toilet and then a bunch of like bloody oh, water yeah, it goes all shining. It's just like blood. And then he real yeah, it's very shiningy. And then he realizes like, oh shit. Yeah, yeah. I should get out of here post haste. I should go and visit Harrison Ford, the the gay secretary. And then he heads back to where the to the um the building where he met the client, let's say. Um, but he can't, he, Robert Duvall's character is not there. And when he's leaving, he sees the wife alive in the limousine. And yeah, at this and point, that's the telltale sign. Indeed. He learns that Robert Duvall's character was killed in an accident. And in fact, he, he discovers that the whole conversation was not them in fear, but them planning to murder Robert Duvall's character. And it and seems pass it off as an accident. Exactly. Yeah. And it seems like Harrison Ford's character was in on it too. Yeah. Indeed. So then all of a sudden, um and we know this because uh Harry gets a call from Harrison Ford's character who says, uh, we'll be listening to you. Um yeah, and then this is the ending that you thought was a cheat. Why don't you exp- explain the ending and why you thought it was a cheat as you go? So what happens is they kind of retcon the conversation. I mean, the, theoretically, Harry has been playing with the audio of the conversation all the time um, throughout the film, which is how he reinterprets certain things of, as how he, he, how he hears them. But what they do is there's the line where originally he's the the um the the man of the couple. I don't know what those characters are called. Man, cheating man. <laughs> man cheat. Man cheat. His name is Mark. Is it Mark? Is that right? No. No, I, I think know. it's, or is it's, it's Paul and Meredith. It's no, Paul and Meredith. It's, it? I'm just looking at the cast list. What are they called? No, it's um it's stud and whore, cheating whore. Yes, 
So when Stud when Stud is talking to Cheating Whore, and uh, he says he'd kill us if he get if if he got the chance, but then the reveal at the end is that the audio was actually he'd kill us if he got the chance. So, but they show the same video, so they show the same scene of the man talking but they just change the audio they they layer different audio over the top and it just do they have you it, have it you looks, have you yeah, looked back over watched it? it yeah it looks super janky it just looks really bad but it's one of those things in 1974 in a cinema you're like no one's ever gonna fucking watch this again yeah right they're gonna see it one time how are they gonna see it again like a few years down the line or something <laughs> they're gonna have to go they're gonna have to go to the cinema multiple times to watch it no, they're not going to be able to pinpoint and and rewind and go back and look at it. It just looks a bit dodgy. It's funny because I was reading online someone saying like, oh, the film is really confusing, but you should try watching it with subtitles or, or re-watching it and you'll make sense. But I watched it with subtitles. I watch everything with subtitles, by the way. I like watching things with subtitles. You're not the first to admit so, uh, with this uh, issue. You won't be the last. Yeah, I love it. It's the same reason for like when, when I watched The Wire. I understood everything the first time, every single thing, because I was just reading the script at the same time as the as the actors. Well, were speaking. so did I, how... but I, I suppose that was just because I don't know. It's not that difficult to understand the wire, is it? I don't know. I think it would be more problematic. There's a lot of characters. There's a lot of stuff going on. It, it feels a bit like a. I mean, it is like a. Were visual you giving novel. yourself merit badges for understanding the wire, Andy? No, I'm saying that, like, I know I would have had difficulty understanding it if I didn't have subtitles. That's what I'm saying. Nothing to do with accents or anything. It's just because I feel like there's a lot of information. I'm not very good at holding a lot of information in my head uh, in terms like mysteries and things like that. So when people give a lot of kind of like background of like, yeah, explaining what was happening, like uh, clues. <laughs> I need to see them written down. I'm very visual. See, I can't be told. I them. thought the part that you were going to uh, say was a cheat for some reason was the the actual the the end scene where he tears apart his apartment no. looking for surveillance. I have equipment. no I have no problem with that. I think that's good, and I think that was a rational choice from by Gene Hackman. And I liked that he played the saxophone at the end in his ruined apartment. That's what I would have done, except with a guitar. But we never get to see what happens to his nephew, is my only issue. Or niece, I can't remember which uh, one it was. Where did you read about this four-hour cut? Because I, I, I read a fair... Somewhere on the internet. I even listened to a big, long DVD commentary. Really? I don't know. I think I saw it on... It's probably on IMDb on the trivia section or something. Jesus, I, sometimes I when you hear reputable. of films that have like these four-hour cuts, it just seems bananas. Let me have a look. I'm going to just quickly look at IMDb and see. I'm pretty sure it was in the trivia section of this. Otherwise, I was reading a few articles and stuff as well. Uh, nope, nope, nope. The one thing in the trivia section on IMDb is, is the whole thing about Harrison Ford's character being gay and how he bought his own suit, which cost $900. Good God. Um, so I'm just, obviously these things are, yeah, the original cut was four and a half hours long. Most significant was a subplot of Harry dealing with his neighbors who complain about the building's, building's plumbing problems, unaware that Harry owns a building. <coughs> other, scenes feature, 
Other scenes feature Harry consulting his lawyer, played by Abe, Abe Vigoda, about this, the apartment situation, and Harry convincing his teenage niece, played by Mackenzie Phillips, not to run away from home. Um, what do you think of the idea that uh, the 1998 film Enemy of the State is a continuation right, of the conversation? I like that. I like the Harry call, but I feel I remember when I watched Enemy of the State, it felt a lot more like typical Gene Hackman. So mm. Gene Hackman's character Harry Cole has transformed in the in the twenty four years between those two films into into being like this fairly a uh, bit more kind of charismatic and uh, open personality wise. I, I wonder is uh, Enemy of the State as good as I remember it being. I was never a massive fan. It's Tony Scott, right? Yeah, Tony I, Scott. I, got I was a, certain I was never a massive fan of it. It's got a bit of Barry Pepper. Everybody loves a bit of Barry Pepper. Oh yeah, Barry Pepper. The old, well, he's one of my favorite. One of my favorite Scientologists. Barry Pepper is Scientologist. Yes, sir. God damn it! He certainly was. Barry Pepper was in Battlefield Earth. I have not so seen Battlefield a Earth. Of a, that's that's a real mark of a Scientologist. Have have you seen Battlefield Earth? No, but I know it's based on like an L. Ron Hubbard uh, story, right? Yes, um, a story that was voted by the Modern Library uh, the second best book of all time after Atlas Shrugged. Nice. nice. Yeah, that's actually... Have to go to, we're going to have to watch Battlefield Earth at some point now. We will, that's yeah. That's 100% going on the list. Will you ever watch <laughs> The Conversation again? I think I got it. I think I got the the gist of it. I mean, it was nice. It's a nice looking film. Old Billy, old Billy Butler's doing the cinematography. Indeed. Uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, it's obviously it's got great actors in it, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It's Francis Ford Coppola of the time, but I give me the Godfathers, give me Apocalypse Now. I'd much rather take those for the nineteen seventies. What's left on your? Options. What's left in? Coppola's filmography for you to watch that you would like to watch. That's a good point because there are vast swathes of it that I have zero interest whatsoever. Like a lot of the stuff that he made in the nineties. I mean, I remember watching the Rainmaker. That was fine. But the Rainmaker. In terms of, yeah, the Rainmaker, the one with uh, Matt Damon and all that. No, no, I don't believe. In nineteen ninety-seven, you never watched the Rainmaker. I uh, believe so. What's his name? The guy who does all the lawyery novels. Grisham. It's a, a, a John Grisham novel adaptation. Yeah, it's fine. Ah, fair enough. But I I've watched the I watched Rumblefish many years ago. Me too. Have you ever Cotton seen One from Club, the Heart? I haven't seen. No, uh, don't think so. That's the the Tom Waits musical he made. Oh. And I've heard him say in an interview that one of that the film that he feels of his that most got. Um, Underappreciated from his perspective, anyway, was Tucker, the man and his dream. Mm, I haven't seen that. Jeff Bridges. Uh, I've seen Peggy Sue got married back in the day. I remember. That's the Buddy Holly uh, musical, is it? Right. Yeah. Um, I haven't seen anything pre Godfather. Um, if I may say, I watched his 2011 horror film Twixt, and it's a big bunch of shit. Yeah, I would not touch anything post Rainmaker. <laughs> have you, oh, I forgot he did uh, Dracula. <laughs> I haven't watched that in a long time. Have you seen Jack? Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Jack is the one with Robin Williams. Oh yeah. my God, he directed that. Yeah, yeah. Oh dear. 
I saw Dear that. God. I saw that in the cinema. I'm sure. <laughs> oh my god! Jesus, that's a terrible film. What happened to him? I don't know. You know that. You know that, that. That that's a made-up illness. The, what Jack? Jackism. Jackism. Yeah, yeah. Jack they made off. it up for the film, basically. <laughs> nice. They made up a <laughs> disease like, hey. in a pitch meeting. They just said um, Robin Williams, but he's a kid. <laughs> <laughs> That's fine. That's all you need. Oh, God. <laughs> Good morning, children. And then you just have Francis Ford Coppola needing money going, yeah, whatever. Let's yeah, do it. that's what happened. He just became a jobbing. He's just a big fat guy drinking wine. Indeed, yeah. Turning up and shouting through a megaphone. That's fine. I mean, he's burned through all of his money on numerous occasions in his oh, life. yeah. No doubt. Indeed. All oh, right. Yeah, the conversation. The other thing the conversation reminded me of is: you, have you ever played any of the Watch Dogs games? No. What are they? They're like uh, Ubisoft games. So you just you run around uh, doing surveillance on people, <coughs> and getting them with drones, and then shooting them and stuff. But there's a lot of surveillance. They're games that are based around surveilling people. Like getting but audio clips set in the stuff like that, but uh, setting up cameras and then going around and uh, hacking into systems and stuff. Obviously, it's you know modern modern day. Mm. Uh, I think that was everything I have to say about the old conversation. Uh, yeah, I ain't got nothing more. For, well, also uh, the music was good. Yeah, I liked the music. That was fine. Couldn't find it on Spotify, it but good. it was good. Yeah. I Indeed. What have you brought to the party this week, sir? Well, I am uh, representing your choice, which is Clute. Uh, Clute is a 1971 American neo-noir crime thriller, direct, film directed and produced by Alan J. Pakula. Pakula, I've been whose saying. Name, yeah. whose, whose name, until last week, I pronounced as Alan J. Pakula. <laughs> My name is Alan J. Packing. <laughs> no, <That's>, no, uh, <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> but it, I, it's difficult for me to say it properly. Pacula. Pacula. I want to say Pacula. It sounds so much better. Pacula. It was written by Andy and Dave Lewis. It was apparently like one of their uh, last films. They hadn't really done a lot of stuff. The only reason I mentioned the writers is because I originally thought this was an adaptation of a novel. Because I thought, why else would this be called Clute? I thought the same. Hey, that's the last note. <laughs> I was I, like, why is this called Clute? The last note I have in my, uh, like, of the movie, as the credits were rolling, I wrote, uh, it's weird it's called Clute. <laughs> but you're, you're, you're not alone because that was something that Roger, uh, Roger Ebert put in his review. He said it should be called Brie, Brie Daniels, Daniels or something, or Jane Fonda. It shouldn't be called uh, Donald Sutherland. Clute. Uh, yeah, so, or I don't know. I mean, or something else. Yeah, I mean, well, I was going to ask you to speculate later on what you think would be uh, a good title, a good title for the film, uh, because yeah, or maybe. Well, I'll wait. I'll, we can, we can, we can come to that later. Well, I just saw it as I just saw it as like. The character I empathise most with was, of course, uh, the Roy Scheider character. Um, right, as a pimp. Yeah, as a, as I just a thought, pimp yourself. I just thought this is just a film about a pimp whose whose hoes just won't behave. 
They won't act. Yeah, right. They won't he, act right. And, and Donald Sutherland rudely interrupting his business mm. and his life. It's not really. A, it's not fair on the old shides. They said, anyway, yeah, Clute was a, an odd choice, particularly going into this. I presumed like. Uh, Clute, Did you think it was something else? Some fucking organization or some shit like that. And then ah, when they say not the guy's name, then when they say uh, we're hiring John Clute, I was like, what? Really? John Clute. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Like they say the name, like it's called Clute, like he's fucking Shaft or something, you know, when really he just seems like a, a Mormon who like lives in the worst apartment in New York City. So, yeah, the film, uh, interesting that uh, the old Shaft came up there because the film stars Jane Fonda, Donald Sutherland, Charles, in Italian pronunciation would be Charles Choffey, but I imagine he probably called himself like Charles Cioffi or something because he was American, and uh, and the old Roy Scheider I mentioned there. But Charles Choffey... I'm going to pronounce it like that because I live in Italy, but he uh, he was in Shaft. He was uh, the police detective, Vic and Vic Androzzi, that hangs out with Shaft. And the one who, at the end of the film, Shaft says, close it yourself, shitty, to him. So he played uh, P- Peter Cable in this film. Which one is Peter Cable? Refresh me. Well, spoilers right from the start, the bad guy. Ah, uh, okay, fair enough, yeah. But to, and spoilers from uh, halfway through this film. <laughs> they reveal the bad guy after 40 minutes, which is kind of uh, an interesting choice. Yeah. I mean, okay, let's just get talking about it. My, yeah. my opinion is so a here we go. Let me, okay, so this is, the, uh, this is the third appearance for Donald Sutherland on the podcast and second for Roy Scheider. So I think Donald Sutherland currently winning the old Call It Friendo appearance record. He's definitely up there. Yeah. I wonder who else is, is who's getting up there, but yeah, I think the old Sutherland's doing well. The film tells the story of a Pennsylvania man, John Clute, hired to locate his missing friend, Tom Gruneman. Gruneman is con- connected by way of sent letters to a New York City prostitute called Bree Daniels. Uh, there's actually a current porn star called Bree Daniels. Is there? Uh, I don't. Yeah, I don't. I don't partake in such immoral material, so I'm not familiar with her work. But it does seem like a pretty weird stage name to choose. Yeah, it can't a be coincidence. A prostitute. No, no, no way. But it just seems like a, such a weird character to choose to be like, yeah, that's who defines me. But good luck to you, Bree Daniels. Good luck. Uh, so as Clute investigates the case, he and Daniels get closer and closer while a mysterious figure lurks in the shadows. Yeah, this film was nominated for two Oscars, although it lost out for Best Original Screenplay to Paddy Chayefsky's script to The Hospital. Uh, I, I, I've never seen The Hospital. I hadn't heard of it until, no. <laughs> until I started looking at this. No, no, no. I've heard, no I've, heard, I've, heard, I've heard of Paddy Chayefsky, but he won an Oscar for the film called The Hospital. Never heard of it. There you are now. Uh, Jane, Jane Fonda won an Academy Award for Best Actress for this film. Yes, I watched a video of her accepting it. This was just before her. I, I, her, her, I, her speech was uh, famous. It was her, her. The idea came from her dad, uh, Peter Fonda, who told her to say, "There's a lot of things to to talk about, but I'm not going to talk about them here." 
paraphrasing. That was Pierre Fonda, her dad, who wrote that. Nice. Um, so yeah, the the Academy Award win. This was just before her ill-fated trip to Vietnam, where she was photographed sitting on an MVA gun battery, earning herself both the ire of the American public and the nickname Hanoi Jane. So when she was uh, at the time of filming Clute, she was still kind of popular and not as divisive in in the U.S. as she then became. I mean, she never divided me much in 1970s Jane Fonda. I just uh, have always, from a young age, having seen Bar- right. <coughs> Barbarella, thought she was a, a, a hot piece of ass. Well, she does get the lads out, but we'll leave that for later. So, as you mentioned last week, the film was the first in Pakula's Paranoia trilogy with the parallax view and all the president's hombres. Mm-hmm. Are you, are, are you a fan of the old Pakula in general? And those other two that you just mentioned, I really like those films. I think they're great. Uh, yeah, I like all the President's Men, and I haven't seen Parallax View. Uh, this is de- this is definitely the weakest in the trilogy and the least mm. paranoid. The least paranoid. <laughs> yeah. Least paranoid. There's no paranoia here. There was stuff going on. Yeah, exactly. There's a guy on the roof. There's a man on the fucking roof. That's not paranoia. Uh, uh, but there is a kind of dark, ominous tone throughout the film, though. So yes, there is. Uh, and about. Well, it's another one where I, they're trying to uh, impress us with technology that is long since archaic. Yeah, that's fair enough. And I think we could agree on that. Mm. Yeah, it's fairly ridiculous looking at it. But So anyway, the cinematographer in this film was Gordon Willis, who shot the Godfather films for Francis Ford Coppola. Um, so yeah, it was kind of interesting because Gordon Willis also did both of the Godfather films, but Coppola used Bill Butler for the conversation. So it seems to be, and of course, and that was taking over from, uh, what's his name that you mentioned before? Uh, Weskily, Weskily, Heskily. Weskily, Heskily, Weskily, 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 that's his name. Heskel, Wexel. Wexel. Hexel, Hex, Hexel, 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 Wexler, Hexel, Wexler. I, yeah, I think it's that's where that's the guy. That's the guy with the normal name. So yeah, there was all these guys. Who were clear. They were all working. They were all kind of like doing the same jobs and like taking over from each other. So Gordon Willis uh, shot this. He supposedly spent hours lighting each scene with actors waiting around from morning till early afternoon. Good waiting God! To actually get the sheet. All right, done. I'll say this. The, the, this film is lit really, really well. <laughs> it is, but like later on, it comes to a scene which I I was going to mention later, which is I I went and checked. I was like, it hey, was this Gordon Willis because it was so dark I couldn't see anything. But that's partially because I was watching on my fifty-pound uh, projector, and that's that fifty pounds is a, a measurement of price and not weight. I should point out. Um, so. Things dark things tend to look pretty dark in these, and I think thinking back to the Godfather, Gordon Willis's lighting tends to be on the on the dark side of things. Yeah, he lights like so a, a I actually a, found a Caravaggio a painting. Yeah, right in my Caravaggio. So <laughs> <laughs> the film drops us directly in a lunch scene. Yeah, cold Clute open. Sitting at, yeah, which I thought was effective. Mm. Clute sitting at a table with a group of friends one of whom is Tom Gruneman, cut to the police explaining to Clute, Gruneman's wife, and their mutual friend, businessman Peter Cable, 
that Tom Grunemann is missing and implicated with a, a New York call girl. It's it's a that's like the first three minutes of the film, and they've mm. basically set up the relationships between some characters, established who Clute is and what his mission is. That's kind of mental. Yeah, it's well, like this the time. Uh, well, I, it just seems like I, I, this was the second no film messing. he ever directed, and right. um, man, no, I think he just burst out the gates with it. Like um, he's, it's no, it really yeah, directed and edited uh, with intention, and it, it takes you like yeah, no fuckery would be the best way to put it, I suppose. Go on, yeah. So they hire Clute to investigate the case of his missing friend because the film is named after him, so he's obviously <laughs> important. It doesn't seem to be a lot of, they're like, yeah, you know this guy. He's your friend. You'll do a good job for some reason. Go to New York and get him. Uh, then we're introduced to Bree Daniels, not the porn star. Uh, first, an awful group casting for an advertising job. Mm. And then we see her servicing one of her customers. Although, is it before or after this? We just hear um, a tape played. Oh, the tape, yeah. We uh, hear a tape. Well, we hear that beforehand. We hear that before we meet Daniels. Yeah, we see a hand press play on this tape. And I was, you're listening to the tape, and I'm th- I was honestly thinking... Is this was this beyond the pa- beyond the pale in 1970? There was a lot of material in this film that again shocked me because in previous weeks I've been talking about like oh French black and white films from the 1950s were unafraid to show all kinds of sexual mm. content and films in the US seemed like, extremely repressed and then you watch this and you're like okay maybe I'm wrong. Yeah, yeah. Because, yeah, this is out there. This is like BDSM, torture, prostitution. But in a normalized fashion, like in. it's not ma- yeah, yeah, like yeah. made alien or whatever. And also, no. she doesn't dress like a, a movie hooker. She dresses like a, you know, like... A hooker with a heart of gold. She's a, <laughs> yeah, she's... She's a classy uh, a hooker lady. She's a working girl. She knows what she's doing. In true 1970s fashion, Miss Fonda gets the lads out, as was the requirement of oi, the oi, times. Oi, 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 oi. Jane. That's Annoy Jane. Next five, 10 to 15 minutes of the film is just Brie living her daily routine, being freaked out by prank callers talking to her therapist. Mm. The, therap- the therapist becomes like a, a motif in it. To basic- It's basically right. a narrator tool just for you, Andy. Just her talking to her therapist, telling us how she yeah. feels about the so, movie. Yeah, this is why I'm doing prostitution, because I'm not happy. I can't stop myself. Yep. Yeah, so in ter- the, some of the names I was thinking for, rather than calling it Clute, uh, I had decided Horror Story. That's one. <laughs> uh, I also suggested Donald, Donald and the Tramp. But that requires, it was, it was kind of a Donald, Tr- Donald Tramp. Nice. I was going for Donald Sutherland and prostitute, but I don't think I don't know if you can refer to Donald Sutherland by his actual name. Clockwatcher. You could just call him Donald Clockwatcher. That's good. I was, I was thinking working girl, because if you do that in 1971, then you just you know okay, you take away the Melanie Griffiths one. Mm. See, that's what we call it. Call it working girl. Okay, I uh, yeah. Or clute, if you prefer. <laughs> so then. Clute. Clute introduces Clute introduces himself to Bree and refuses to be seduced. Bree seems a little annoyed that she can't use sex to manipulate him. And while Clute is round Bree's gaff, he hears a man on the roof and goes up to investigate. This was the point where I was annoyed by Gordon Willis and my shitty uh, shitty projector. 
because I just literally couldn't see anything. I couldn't see very much in this part either, though, I'll say. Okay, good. So it wasn't just me. I just saw Donald Sutherland going up uh, uh, some stairs with a gun in the dark, looking around, and I was just kind of going, are we, are we finding anything here, Donald? Because I'm not seeing it. Is this before or after he's moved into the apartment below her? This, I think, is before. Is he in the same building? I didn't catch that. Yeah, yeah. He's, is he like living in the same building? He, I he's living. Yeah, yeah. He's all. living downstairs. So she arrives home one day after he has asked her, "Can he ask her a few questions?" And she says no. And then she arrives back one day, and he has his door of his shitty apartment on the bottom on the ground floor open, and he's playing a tape. Oh, that's her right. talking. Oh yeah. He's oh, moved okay. in downstairs, and then I, that passed me by completely. She's like, "All right, so come up and talk." Yep. And then in, in an interesting move, uh, approximately 42 minutes into around a one hour and 50 minute film, this is when they choose to reveal that Peter Cable, Gruneman's friend and colleague, and the person who's hired Clute is the baddie. How do they that reveal seemed like that? like a fairly bold choice. Because they reveal that he is the guy who's sitting around listening to the tapes. Mm. And then this is the first point, I think, where... He's sitting there kind of looking mesmerized, listening to the tapes. And then you see, I think a little bit later on, you see he kind of like closes a shutter in his room and he's listening to the tapes and it looks like he's about to have himself a, a steamy wank. But it's, fa- <laughs> it, it's fairly clear. It's fairly clear. I that thought you were going to use a some- euphemism there. <laughs> no. <laughs> it's fairly clear that something is something is rotten in Denmark here. There's something is going on. Every it's, word of that except for except for wank was a euphemism. So the, so the wank surprised I decided me. If, in, in my head I was like I, to be fair, I, there's no restriction on the on the explicit nature of of these words. All so, right. Or the imagery. So, so, yeah. So, I just, yeah. What do you think? Was it a bold choice or was it clear to you that he was a baddie? At that no, point? it was clear that he was a baddie, I think. It, well, it didn't come across as a reveal to me, even. I remember when I saw it, I was like, oh, what? This is supposed to be a reveal. I only knew it was a reveal by the way they shot it. Um, no, no, I, I had kind of that figured out because, I mean... Because even the, the way that they even reveal to Donald Sutherland, we know that Cable's the bad guy, mm. but the way that they reveal it to Donald Sutherland is just a bit of a letdown. So that wasn't, like, that's not a reveal, and it's not even, it's not set up for Donald Sutherland or the audience as a big reveal when they match the handwriting Yeah, on the letters. Donald Sutherland's like, ah, oh, I guess Peter Cable did it. Cable's done it, isn't it? It was Cable. <laughs> he doesn't seem overly bothered. It was Cable, wasn't it? Yeah, and is he Cable's mate also? It doesn't... I mean, Cable worked together with Gruneman. We don't really know anything about this Tom Gruneman guy that's gone missing. No, I mean... Like, we know... Like, okay, so here's the thing. Like with... Cable and Gruneman worked together. Like with so hey, many war films, the plot is largely unimportant the, yeah, the important is thing is what's piece. going on between clute and brie um or dr detective and mrs whore um, yeah this this is not heavy on the plot this uh this film is no, very it's, much it's, about to be fair, kind of yeah, interaction it's a character piece um and it's a character piece it's oddly i'm gonna maybe i'm, I'm interpreting this wrong but it's it's 
kind of got an oddly feminist bent to it. As a matter of fact, right. there's a line that started in this film with um, Jane Fonda's sessions with her psychiatrist that would very much be uh, picked up and taken for a walk uh, almost 50 years later by Phoebe Waller-Bridge in Fleabag, which is... <laughs> Still haven't watched Fleabag. It's on the list. It's very good. TV shows. But, uh, yeah, that's they, what they just, tell me. Just the idea that she kind of almost wishes she doesn't, she didn't have a body, and also the only thing she can use for herself is like a body. Is the old, the old body? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and it's a good little monologue, um, and it does, yeah, because that Breeze shows very little autonomy in the film. Um, yeah. On, on yeah, right up until the until the end, unfortunately. But I mean, ultimately. She that she's a prostitute. Like that's the the kind of life she's caught up in. Um, let's get along until we meet her pimp. Yeah. Well, here we go. This is it right here. Next, we get Roy Scheider looking very young as a sleazy pimp. Interesting to see him in such a. He does a minor not look role. sleazy. He's. I mean, well, <laughs> that depends on the company that you keep, sir. But morally, to me, pimps are I sleazy. Have, uh, I have to take issue with this man's work. Fair enough. And by take issue with, I mean celebrate. Do you think... Yeah, so we see a bit of the old shides, the old shideton. What were we going to say? Do you think... Do you think they got the pimp stuff right? I am not an expert in the old world of pimping. He seems fairly... He doesn't seem like he's doing a lot of uh, pimp slapping. No, but as revealed later, he's um, controlling them in other ways. Yeah. I I guess he's he's a pimp. He's not he's not the hero of the story. Let's say. Mm. Anyway, the next scene is a favorite of mine. Uh, Brie is an aspiring actress, and we see her doing a scene from Saint Joan by George Bernard Shaw. At the end of her audition, the casting director says, "Interesting accent." My question is, what accent do you think she was going for in this scene? Well, it's an Irish accent, isn't it? Is that what it was? Uh, let's uh, let's take a let's take a little listen to that audition. I'll tell you something, Jack. It is in the bells that I hear my voices. Oh, not today when they all rang. That was nothing but jangling. But here, in this corner, where the bells come down from heaven and the echoes linger. Very interesting accent. <laughs> nice. What was she going for there? Is that Irish? The Bells Linger. I thought so. I thought it was Irish, yeah. Well, and plus, George, yeah, George Bernard Shaw is Irish, so. Right. That makes sense. But uh, that accent, I, I just wasn't sure, like, was it supposed to, are we supposed to think it was a shit accent? Because the, the casting director literally was like, oh, interesting accent. Well, it was a shit accent. It wasn't as shit as yeah. um, Emily Blunt or Jamie Dornan's from this week. Uh, have you have you seen this? Have you heard about no. this? Uh, there's a famously uh, horrific set of Irish accents in the trailer for a film called Wild Mountain Thyme, which is coming up. Oh, now. time! Yeah, I heard about it. I'll stick that. I'll stick that in the old uh, YouTube links as well because I need to check that out if it's uh, if it's embarrassing enough for them. Yurt. So. Brie and Clute go to a nightclub looking for one of her old co-workers who is beaten up by one of her Johns. Dancing on the stage in this scene is... Ooh, didn't spot Sylvester it. Sylvester Stallone. What? 
He's very, very much in the background, but Did you spot it's him? famously one of... Well, I went on YouTube and I saw a thing where someone, there was a big arrow going, <laughs> Sylvester Stallone is here. So he's at the back, he's dancing like a bit of a... Didn't he also do a, an... a bit of a a bit of a bingo player in the in the old parlance of uh, Riddick? He did. Um, um, d- he did a porno movie, didn't he? He did. Yeah, I haven't. I never watched that. I believe it's called the Italian Stallion. Italian Stallion. Yeah, I heard about that. I heard about that. I haven't seen it. I'll stick that in the old YouTube links <laughs> as well. <laughs> it's been hardcore pornography in the YouTube links. I'll put Bree Daniels in as well. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just put links to Pornhub. Why not? It's fine. So uh, Cable is on the roof later outside Bree's house. Uh, she freaks out and goes over to stay with Clute. He tells her to sleep on the bed while he sleeps on the pull-out part. In the middle of the night, she shags him. When she wakes up, she seems to have regained some control in her interactions uh, with Clute. Now that she, now that he has finally succumbed to her physically, much like every other man she deals with on a daily basis. That's a sexy yes, scene. Yes, queen. Yeah, indeed. That's a sexy scene. I like that scene. She gets, she's, she gets, because she gets on top and she's wearing like a top, but no, no bottoms. Yeah, and you get to see her, her leg, like, uh, but there's mm. no boobage or anything. It's just a sexy scene. Yep, that is a leg that should be over the top of an NVA battery gun. So, then <laughs> they locate Arlen, Bree's old whore mate, uh, Bree and... <laughs> oh, yeah, in, the, and in Cl- the junkie scene. That, I thought that, yeah, was, really, and, I thought yeah. that was really effective, that yeah, scene. Bree and Clute accidentally scare off the dealer who's delivering heroin to clearly strung out Arlen and her man. Yeah, that is like they're sweaty and just... They're Jones in bed. It's funny because, like, that's another of the sort of dirty elements of the film is showing heroin addicts like that, like, you know, going cold turkey looking rough. Yeah. I mean, like, I don't know. This film as a name has, like, lasted the test of time, but, you know, it wouldn't um, be one of the more famous films of the decade. But, I mean, that said, I I suppose. There were famous people in this, and I mean, it is pretty fucking full on. Now, that scene in particular, that was like, mm. that scene could have been, I don't know, Mother Superiors from Train Spotting if that wasn't so stylized. Yeah. Has, Do you know what I mean? It's kind of train spotting Yeah, there is a, it does feel a bit train spotting there. It's just, yeah, it's, it's grim, um, which is what you want from your visiting a junkie den scene. Anyway. Yeah. Afterwards, Bree jumps out of Clute's car and runs off. The next time we see her, she's high as a kite, dancing in the same nightclub as before. She goes up to a man sitting at a table with his friends and starts kissing him. And that man is... Go on. Richard Jordan. Who's that? I don't know. AKA Francis Seven. Off of Logan's Run. <laughs> Uncredited. Man who kisses Brie in the bar. Are you joking? No jokes. That was it's the old Richard Jordan. It's Francis Seven himself. That's Logan's mate. Who, who? That's Logan's mate. Logan's mate is the one who's kissing Jane Fonda. Nice. Jordan. Do, uh, <laughs> I, bet, I guess he must have used the uh, golden line on her. Let's have sex. Let's have sex. Yep. 
So then Clute uh, nurses Bree back to health after she starts getting the smack withdrawals, something bad. Uh, it also turns out that Arlen has been murdered, this strung-out junkie lady from before. And from analyzing writing samples, Clute realizes that Cable is the baddie. Son uh, of a he bitch. Goes over, he goes over to Cable and sets a trap for him by mentioning some non-existent diary that he wants to buy. Cable leaves in a helicopter... In the background, we can see the construction of the World Trade Center. That's right. Notice now, that. I'm not sure if you know this, but apparently on September the 11th, 2001, <laughs> <laughs> some guys flew planes into those buildings. So, <laughs> so they just in case you didn't, just in case you didn't catch that. I must trivia, have, uh, some trivia. I must have set that construction back a bit. Yeah, I don't know what's there now. Who knows? Uh, anyway, Bree goes over to see one of her clients. Cable ambushes her uh, when she's there and reveals that he killed Arlen playing a rather disturbing tape of the murder. Yeah, right? Yeah. yeah. And then it's, it's, uh, a, it's around oh, yeah, in this scream, scene. Horrible screams, horrible, horrible screams from Arlen, I recall. It's a, from this scene and also from his fight with Roy Scheider earlier that we can realize <laughs> that um, Pakula is not interested in violence whatsoever. Nah, because, yeah, at this, so uh, Cable reveals that he killed Gruneman after Gruneman saw him kill another prostitute. At this point, Cable's racking up a lot of kills. He's killed four people. Luckily, ooh, ooh, Clute ooh, appears. A uh, yeah. good uh, alternative title for the film. The, ca- the Cable Guy. <laughs> the Cable Guy. Mm. That's quality. Mm. Yeah, I like it. So then, luckily, Clute appears and lunges at Cable, who then jumps out the window yeah. to his death. God, that's, that's it. Like the we- that is a weak, a weak action scene. Uh, yeah. A three-second struggle, and then he jumps out. And the, the thing is, the film is shot so well, like yeah, um, that you can just conclude that Pakula is not interested in the violence at even slightly. No, because this, because I'm has sure he the, could have shot it well or better, but this this has the same shooting style as that scene from uh, Point Blank, where the sheet of cardboard falls out the window. <laughs> the guy <laughs> yeah, yeah, falls yeah, down true. to his death, and is clearly a piece of paper. Uh, I hate when that happens. And then, uh, yeah, so then Brie goes full. So that's it. Job done. Brie goes full pretty woman, choosing to move to Pennsylvania with old Johnny Clutes. The end. All They all lived happily ever after. Uh, yeah. Um, this is a good film. I'm glad I have gotten yeah, uh, round to it. Um, but, yeah, it's the not as good as the other things in the Paranoid Trilogy, unfortunately. Hmm. So yeah, I guess I I need to watch Parallax View. I feel like I already kind of know Parallax View's story a little bit because I feel like it's the type of thing that's been spoofed. Yes, in the the, the ending in particular. You you've yeah, seen, you've seen I feel the like ending it has a lot. Bad ending, right? Has got it. Does it does it have like a downer ending? Uh, without spoiling it, it has a fa- it has a, a famous and highly stylized famous ending. A, a right, ending. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Stylized would be because it's just. I don't know the the style of shooting just switches suddenly to basically mm. to indicate to you this is the ending you tit um, right in a certain kind of a way yeah it's very good though it's very good um it, I'll check it out uh, and uh, all the up. president's men is just excellent that's yeah I've seen all the president's men I mean I like that obviously that's a great film but I mean to, to like okay this was uh, Pakula's second ever film. 
And for that, I mean, Jesus, he like knocked it out of the park. There's some scenes in it that are just fucking f- terrific. Like um, when uh, Jane Fonda is going into the textile factory uh, the first time uh, visiting that uh, dude who she just tells stories to. Right. Yeah. That's there's a really nice tracking shot yeah, 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 yeah. while she's that follows her through. That reminded me of Eyes, Eyes Wide Shut for some reason. I think it was just because it's like kind of garmenty. Like there's a scene mm. in I, oh you haven't seen it you haven't watched Eyes Wide Shut I actually I have in the meantime in the <laughs> oh you did yeah, you watch it oh, I did since uh, we last discussed Kubrick yes and actually um, the scene where they you're right about what you said because uh, the reason you had brought it up to me the last time was I said we were talking about Barry Lyndon and I I had yeah. said that there's just this overwhelming sense of just doom for the second half of every single Stanley Kubrick film and you went yeah. except and actually yeah you were right because this film Eyes Wide Shut ends on a very positive note kind of yeah they've they've turned their relationship around mm. uh, great film Tommy Cruise really good uh, did you yeah, ever like read about the uh, what's the name of the fellow who plays the drill sergeant in Full Metal Jacket uh, Ar- Arlie Ermey did you ever hear about uh, these this bizarre thing that he has um, maintained that Stanley Kubrick phoned him. I think he's dead now, is he, Arlie Emery? Who knows? uh, That Stanley Kubrick phoned him up a couple of nights before Eyes Wide Shut was supposed to go on and he said that uh, Cruz and Kidman had bullied him into making this film. And every other account of uh, Kubrick's opinion of the film completely differs. People say that he was really happy with it. Strikes me as a film he would have been really happy with. It's quality. I mean, it's a good film. But did he entirely finish it before his death? He did, yeah. He he, did. He screened uh, the finished one, apparently, to Cruz and Kidman just before he died. So that's fine. I really liked it. The first time I watched it again, I was kind of 18 or something. I feel like I didn't appreciate it as much. But then when I went back and watched it, I was like quality it's the kind of thing that uh you wouldn't quite appreciate it so much had you not watched all the other kubrick before it and you're like wow you were still kind of growing as a filmmaker even at this point it's one of the most Mm -hmm. interesting things about it anyway Anyway. yeah the old the old clutes i like clute i thought it was good um it's nice to just watch a competently made thriller i would probably have preferred if it was a bit more uh, heavier on the thriller and less on the character interaction i wanted a mystery i wanted more of a mystery yeah me too i thought we were getting into something like the ipcris file uh mm. or the andromeda strain or something like that some like some, like some real 70s paranoid stuff um right. have you ever like yeah we've we've t- spoken about it uh, a bunch on um this podcast already i feel at least once or twice i've brought it up uh, but for example, Black Sunday, that film, John Frankenheimer's film, right? It, like yeah, the, that for the, me is just the, the peak of just seventies um, thriller, frantic, just uh, danger, and I don't know something about the way they were shooting films back in the day. Everybody just seemed more dangerous, and that film. That's also something. That's also something that was spoofed on The Simpsons. Uh, Black Sunday. Yeah, that's the one with the blimp, right? That's right. Yeah. When did they spoof that? Yeah. There's a episode where um, Sideshow Bob has has a blimp and he's going to crash it into. Oh into the yes, or and actually it's, he's uh, a dead. Yeah, actually I don't know which came first, Bruce Dern from Black Sunday or uh, Kelsey Grammer <laughs> as Sideshow Bob. 
because huh. they actually are actually quite similar to one another. And anyway, I mean, it's always good just catching up with films of the of the seventies. To be fair, um, yeah, I'm very happy to. I think all the seventies fare so far has been uh, extremely solid. Well, then prepare yourself. Oh, except for wait, sorry, I just I just let Logan oh, run yeah, off, yeah, the, yeah. off the uh, hook there. Jesus Christ. I was just talking. I was just saying words there without thinking. I just called Logan's Run even an acceptable film. That's fucking sacral. I mean, it's it is interesting. It is interesting. <laughs> Let's have sex. Yeah, we forget all about that. Is it it is interesting that it existed alongside these films like like oh, you, you, you I've I'm like insane. I've read at least two books about the a bloated out of touch state of the studio system and if nothing else is a testament to that is the fact that yeah like logan's run came out the year before star wars you know yeah anyway so you can forget about the seven you can forget about the 70s for the moment uh because my uh my film uh for the week coming up um is coming 20 years before the 70s were even a twinkle in their father's eye Right, that's how years work. (laughs) (laughs) Some other years have sex. (laughs) Making later years. This is great. All right, now, obviously, Uh I am... That sounds like a coin. That sounds like someone's got a coin. Obviously, I am massively tempted to just... To rig this? To just rig this. But I am looking you in your fake cartoon eyes right now, and he's got a... Yeah, uh, I have fake cartoon eyes. Yeah, uh, and I'm telling you, I'm not going to do that. So I have worked my way through a good chunk of Akira Kurosawa's films over the last few years and uh, was very happy with myself for enjoying them all. Gave myself a pat on the back because oh, now you see you're semi literate. But um, I mostly steered towards the ones about Yakuza's or Samurai's and I have somehow danced around what's apparently his really nice feel good film. Steven Spielberg's famous from his if, uh, most uh, Steven Spielberg's favorite from the Kurosawa catalog, and now we're going to get around to it, uh, 1952's Ikiru. What have you brought to the table this week? Well, yeah, my choice is a film that I don't know how to pronounce. I presume it is Encendier. Encendier. Ah, the Denis Villeneuve. Yeah, Denis Villeneuve film from 2010 that is a kind of Middle Eastern set war thriller about apparently about some Canadian twins who go back to the Middle East. You haven't blah, seen blah, that? Blah. No, sir, but I know it was uh, very uh, well received, mm. like critically within his uh, within his filmography, it's ranked ahead of even prisoners in terms of like Metacritic and and uh, how it was received and uh, yeah, I just never got around to it. I mean, I, I'm obviously a big Denis Villeneuve fan, but I have not seen yeah. Encendier or Encendier or whatever it's. Amongst the tragedies, so. I mourn most of the, of COVID nineteen is uh, I'm gonna I'm not gonna get to see Dune for a year. Yeah, God damn! I would really, I I want to rewatch Blade Runner, but it's three hours. I've rewatched it once in the cinema. Can't. It's it's really because that's one thing about about that film is it is not dependent on just the pulsating cinema sound mix because it's a slow just, film. It's pensive. I've only seen it. I've only seen it once. I saw it in the cinema. Yeah, and I just 
I just can't get into the right mindset to sit down and watch it when there's obviously so many other things to watch. Do you know what, Andy? But I'll it, tell I, you this. I loved it. I thought it was beautiful. I'll tell you this. If you respect my opinion even halfway, which of course you don't, um, the only you don't ignore your mood. Sit down on it and press play because it, it it's. I guarantee it. I was avoiding it for ages, uh, like yourself, and it was on Netflix. I just said, ah, fuck it, sure, we'll see. And it just opens with this fantastic scene where he pops out to Dave Bautista at a protein farm with maggots, and you're just like, immediately I was like, okay, I'm there, I'm here, this is perfect, whatever. Anyway, so you're bringing Ensemble. I have a coin. I have a coin with Miguel Cervantes on one side and... uh, 50 on the other. What are you going for? Cervantes. Cervantes. I dropped it. Hold on. Uh, I got to try yeah, one more a, time. That's a, a redo. That's yeah. a redo. It is fucking Cervantes. <laughs> Good God. Can't catch a break, this guy. What's happening? Good God. All right. Well, I have seen on Sunday. I did enjoy it. Oh, I'm sorry to you to rewatch it that's all right um but i'm <laughs> going to chop you at the bits with a with a with an iranian family drama just to fuck you on this um what is it it's the ex- uh, separation or something it absolutely is a separation i haven't seen it i haven't seen the separation i just remember in my head these two films are always kind of inter twined uh well i didn't just, just know even that the names. but i know a, a separation was a big deal at the time it came out certainly um, yeah 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 it's always been on my list it's another one i've had for i had for ages and ages and i've never watched and <laughs> i saw the i saw the spanish film he made a couple of years ago and that's absolutely excellent everybody knows who is this um uh, this guy's called Ascar farhadi um a, a separation came out 2011 and then he made a film with uh, all yeah. the Spanish and Latin actors in the world. So like Penelope Cruz, Javier Bardem and uh, the Argentinian lad, um, Ricardo Darín. Uh, oh, yeah. Everybody knows. But um, yeah, never seen a separation, but I guess I'm going to this week and I'll never... Yes. Uh, fuck and coins, man. Fuck coins. Two hours. It's only two hours. Indeed, but, yeah. Uh, on Sunday is about two hours, ten minutes. Well, it's Denis Villeneuve. Yeah, he doesn't fuck around with the... With the running times, does he? Okay. Well, these are definitely quality films, though. I mean... Yeah, for sure. We'll see. All right. I feel like we're in for a treat. All right. uh, Until that uh, auspicious occasion. um, And if you have a spare three hours in the following week, just just go for it. Just rewatch Blade Runner 2049, man. What do you got to lose? Well, yeah, we'll see. I might watch Zoolander. I definitely watch Zoolander. What am I? What the fuck <laughs> am I saying? Watch it. Do it. All right. Uh, adi- we'll do. Adios, hombre. Adios. <laughs>